Ross Harper studied both neuroscience and mathematical modeling, combining the two into his love child, Limbic, an AI therapy assistant. We talk about the challenges of working in mental health, different business models available in the area, and how Ross sold his face to pay off all of his uni debt. I hope you enjoy. So Ross, could you tell me a little bit about your story? So how you got to where you are today? So I started sort of my academic life at Cambridge um, and I was studying um, natural sciences, but uh, it's kind of like an American system um, and you kind of major, I guess, in in one area. And that area for me was neuroscience. Um, So I kind of, I was very interested and fascinated in how brains work, how people think, you know, what is self-cognition? And uh, sort of finished up my undergrad knowing <laughs> very little, uh, but, but uh, you know, keen to learn more. And, and I, I thought at the time that the solutions to these sorts of problems were going to lie in a um, mathematical approach. So the days of, you know, putting on a white coat and cutting up brains, you know, it's still very much, uh, um, you know, a place for it. But um, the emerging field of computational neuroscience was was you know, looking quite interesting to me. So I came to UCL. Um, I did a postgraduate master's in mathematical modeling. And that was just, you know, can I upskill in these areas, you know, learn to code, learn to think from an engineering perspective around, you know, building these, uh, constructing mathematical models. And then I took, kind of married those two things together, neuroscience and mathematical modeling during my PhD in computational neuroscience. And I did that um, uh, at uh, UCL as well. So this was kind of, uh, you know, um, I was, I would, there was no master plan here. I was following what I was interested in, um, you know, in the moment. And uh, I was very fortunate that I ended up doing something I really loved. And I finished up my PhD and I thought, right, what next? And there are some postdoc opportunities that I was, I was keen to explore. But I also really liked, um, I, I love there being immediate impact of my work. That they're the things I enjoyed the most while I was doing my PhD. And I was beginning to think, you know, some notable companies like, you know, DeepMind had, had come from UCL and uh, and generally around this sort of space. And I was beginning to think that um, academia was losing its monopoly on where all the cool research could happen and where all the cool breakthroughs could happen. And actually, companies in the right space could be the ones um, at the leading edge of this sort of stuff. So I, uh, I kind of like threw my hat in the ring <laughs> and I uh, started a company. Um, I started it on Entrepreneur First. I don't know if you're familiar with, with the Entrepreneur First program. Maybe just for the benefit of, of your listeners, it's, it's kind of an accelerator program um, that was based here in London and is now spread to different parts of the world. But it's sort of the Y Combinator of, uh, of the UK at the time. And um, Matt Clifford and Alice Bentick, who are great founders, kind of like, you know, leading, leading the, uh, the way. And, um they they spoke to me and i was i was really interested in the idea of being supported at idea stage to build a company and to be matched up with a founder who and you know a co-founder who would um kind of share my passion so i i i um joined the program in 2017 met my co-founder sebastian de Vries, a, a dutch programmer and uh you know i met him in week one and we kind of never looked back you know we've been working together daily for the last three and a bit years now and uh, um, that was kind of where Limbit was born, really, on the Entrepreneur First program. So in researching you, I also found that earlier on you'd done some work in and some projects in marketing. Um, and I came across buymyface.com. What's yeah. the story behind that? 
the story was that it was all story. <laughs> um, it was a it was a bit of a tongue in cheek project. It was definitely not a business. Basically, uh, um, a really good friend of mine um, during my undergrad, Ed Moyes, we kind of like lived next door to each other, and we were always you know scheming on different different things we could be doing. And we had a a very bad music record label that we were working on at the time, and. And we we came to the end of our um, uh, undergrad, and we we didn't really want to just go and apply for a job. We didn't know what we wanted to do essentially. Um, and the Deloitte's and the PwC's were were um, sort of like coming and doing sort of like uh, um, these uh, setting up exhibitions just to sort of like try and attract applicants. And and this wasn't really something that either of us were interested in. And we'd um, we'd come across, I think it was around two thousand and four. Do you, do you know of the million dollar homepage? Have you heard of this? Yes. It was something, it, it was somewhere early 2000s and it was a guy, Alex Chu, who actually is now the co-founder of Calm. <laughs> um, but he started life with uh, just an idea called the million dollar homepage where back when the internet was like a little bit more in its infancy, he bought a domain and hosted a web page and he divided it into a million pixels and he sold each pixel for $1. And the idea was that you can advertise on his website. Now, it's worth nothing if nobody's visiting it, right? But then the more people talk about it and the more of a story begins to get generated, the more value each pixel in this website has because the more visitors it's getting. And then because it's getting more value and it's making more money, it becomes more of a story and therefore, and it kind of upward spirals. And I just thought this was such a really interesting um, sort of systems approach to solving a problem of you've got nothing of value and you turn it into something incredibly valuable just through an upward spiral and, and a story and making sure that there's this positive feedback and so taking the exact same principle my friend and I uh, said well how about this we'll create a story we're going to sell advertising space on our faces we're going to make it purposefully um, weird and wacky you know what selling it on your faces we can't we don't know how to face paint but we'll buy some face paint and we'll give it our best go and we'll try and you know paint a logo onto my friend's cheek and he'll do he'll do my cheek and and uh um it was it was this sort of like crazy idea and then we just went to the newspapers because we had a website and we divided each day into uh you know each day was a different logo on our faces um it's kind of like a, an online calendar and um we just went to local newspapers and said hey this is weird, isn't it? What do you think of it? And they went, yeah, it's funny, you know, like we'll ask you some questions and we'll we'll sort of like run the story. And then that meant that local businesses went, I'll give you, I'll give you $5 for a day. And we were slowly increasing the price of each day. So there was an incentive to get in early when it was only sort of like six, seven dollars, eight dollars, nine dollars. Um, and then it, it it worked, you know, not nowhere near as successful as million dollar homepage. It was a sort of a, a secondary attempt, but it the goal was to pay off our student debt. Um, and uh, we, we managed to do that. We, we ended up getting sponsored by Ernst & Young um, and sort of like uh, some big law firms. And I think really uh, the sort of fun part of it was um, the companies that understood what was happening here realized that the more they contributed to our story, the more advertising they would get. So it's not just about um, visitors visiting the website. It's about the newspapers who were running the story telling the world about what we'd been up to. And so very early on companies like Ernst & Young for example clocked that if they bought the flat rate for the day but then actually uh, ended up saying well we're going to pay for you to go skiing or you know we'll send you to a Michelin star restaurant or you know they, we went all over 
Um, and it meant that when the Times newspaper was sort of like, you know, doing a big two-page spread on 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 uh, By My Face, a ludicrous idea, um, they'd say, so what have you been up to? And we said, well, we, we're on our way to France to go skiing because Ernst & Young have paid for that to be to happen, you know, and, and so they got way more advertising out of it. And it's not advertising marketing isn't really it's not a core competency of mine it's not something that i'm educated in or or um uh particularly passionate about but i did like i did just like the sort of like interesting way of solving a problem you've got nothing of value and you need to pay off your student debt so what do you do and it was yeah it was a fun one i love that so obviously you know you've not got training in marketing but you've got an appreciation of virality and and how to how to make a story can you like take that lens and apply it to medtech and limbic? Like, have you thought of interesting ways of getting you know stories out there and and going viral? Mm, really good question. Um, not not explicitly. I think any like marketing is actually something that limbic is not really doing much um, around. We're not we're not shouting very loudly about what we're doing. Um, I think part of that comes from the fact that uh, we're, we're operating in, um, you know, health tech is it's sensitive and it deserves respect. Um, and the data that we are working with is very sensitive data. The types of um, patients who we're, we're there to help are very vulnerable. And, and it, I don't think it's necessarily appropriate to be sort of like pushing virality. And like it's, it's not the same um, it's not the same mindset that we we're in at Limbic. Um, what is interesting though, when you sort of think about virality is how do you make the product something that people genuinely want to use? Now, I think a lot of health tech companies fall short in this space because you, you know, they, they theorize around what they're going to build and why it's going to be useful. And then they deploy and actually maybe they haven't had much patient input or, or user input during the design process, but when they deploy, no one actually wants to use it. The clinicians are saying, nah, it's too complicated, too much of a mental hurdle. The patients are saying, nah, it's annoying, I don't like it. And then suddenly all the value that was supposed to come from this product never gets realized because nobody uses it. And I think that happens a lot in health tech. Um, and so when it comes to thinking about sort of like virality, it's not around the marketing um, sort of like PR, but it is around how can we make the, pro how can we sort of instill positive feedback loops in the product? You know, how can we make it something that, um, patients and clinicians and our intended users really build habit loops around. And I think that's something that we're very focused on, if that makes sense. No, I think that's a good point. You can't make, you know, like buymyface.com, you can't just make a total joke out of some health tech product. Um, <laughs> yep. When you think about, you know, getting PR and getting a story around what you're doing, because essentially um, with a lot of these companies, there'll be a lot of other competitors doing very similar things. I think the traditional approach or our approach, at least I've seen done, is to kind of make, you know, a patient story or a user story mm. um, and try and get that across. And that mm. kind of forms a story. Are there any other ways of, you know, making something which is effectively, you know, service provision in healthcare, making that into a story? I think that clinical recommendations carry a lot of weight in healthcare. Um, and... Uh, a peer-to-peer -peer recommendation is worth a lot compared to just, you know, we, we're Facebook advertising, for example. So really, um, what you want to try and do, if you're going to try and grow and get the word out and have it be received in the right way, is you really want to get those clinical champions. You want to have clinicians telling their colleagues at conferences and just by email that this tool is really good and they should take it seriously because that's the way you're going to spread and that's the way you're going to sort of uh, 
um, enter services. So really, um, yeah, I think patient patient um, case studies are, are important because ultimately they're the end users and, and the whole system is set up to help these people. But actually, if you're if you've got a value proposition and you're able to um, help and support the clinicians, it can be very powerful because then they're in, they they talk to their colleagues about how useful this tool is for them personally. And I think that really does, you know, it's front of mind because it's bringing value to them. And, and I think that is a, um, definitely something if, if it's if it's on the table and you can definitely something to build into a health tech product. So can you tell me the story of Limbic and what it does? Sure. So, Misty, why don't I start kind of like high level and then you can sort of uh, nudge me with specific questions that you're interested in. We can go down different rabbit holes. Perfect. I mean, at a, at a high level, um, we're trying to. Um, you know, I guess our sort of mission statement, so to speak, is to revolutionize psychological therapy. And we want to do this with the sort of latest state-of-the-art technologies, so data science, machine learning, and just beautiful product design. So that's kind of like what we're here to do. We believe that a lot in, in sort of like mental health care, there are just, there's so many different uh, products that you can use, particularly B2C wellbeing apps. And, you know, the apps are always inundated with them. But a lot of these apps that would loosely fall under the category of a digital therapeutic, you know, it's, it's a digital tool which is designed to directly alleviate symptoms through some sort of guided exercise or, or content. They are, they're taking a specific route towards supporting patients by digitizing existing content, you know, um, guided meditation or CBT exercises and then trying to uh, gain sort of um, an evidence base that their specific repo of content is helpful. That's kind of the approach they're taking. And some are doing really well. You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to sort of uh, diminish the efforts. There is definitely a place. But at Limbic, we kind of believe that the way to really help patients is to amplify the effectiveness of clinicians. So our our tool it does face patients and it and it is um it is there to sort of alleviate symptoms and help in in multiple different uh, ways and parts of the patient journey through the care pathway but always we're linking back to how can we take the clinical expertise that exists in the system and increase it tenfold and spread it further and you know and, and give it better impact so we're taking this approach and and that basically leads us to our software tool which is an ai therapy assistant so from start to finish, from the moment you enter care at the point of entry to when you leave and, and beyond, Limbic is a therapy assistant, a little a digital assistant that helps both patients and clinicians. So this is what I was saying about giving the clinicians a value prop as well as the patients. So what does that actually look like when you, when you drill down into the product? Well, at the front end, we've got uh, Limbic Access, which is a, our AI therapy assistant, lives as a web chat bot. It's a conversational AI. And it helps with referrals into NHS services. So um, specifically, the services we're looking at right now, uh, they're called Improving Access to Psychological Therapies, or IAPT. And this is the NHS sort of uh, um, talk therapy, uh, primary secondary care for mental illness. Now, um, at the moment, you've got a huge influx of patients seeking help with common mental illness and, and, and requiring talk therapy. And every year that's been increasing. So, you know, uh, um, eight years ago, it was 800,000. Today, it's 1.7 million being referred in. But while you've sort of seen a steady increase 
in the number of patients who require talk therapy, service capacity has remained largely the same, right? So this is fundamentally, there is a supply demand mismatch here. Now, what Limbic, Limbic Access is doing, sort of like our flagship product and the first thing we've built is it sits at the front end and it tries to improve service capacity by supporting the referral in and doing that initial assessment and or like supporting that initial assessment. So at the moment, what would happen is somebody would self-refer into the service and then a clinician would need to call them and spend an hour on the phone talking, collecting basic patient information and collecting the outcomes to different uh, clinical questionnaires. So these are the PHQ-9, the GAS-7, these sorts of things. Now Limbit is saying, look, um, clinical expertise could be spent focusing on, you know, clearing the wait list and, and treating. So why don't you let us take the lion's share of work with, you know, making life easier for the patient entering the service, GP lookup, these sorts of things, like little, little tools built in. And we'll also ask for the patient data and the uh, clinical outcome questionnaires, and we'll sort of like signpost it to the correct care level. Now, this is, this is a very simple thing, right? But it, it has big impact because 25% of IAPT budget is spent on that clinical assessment stage. And so by just supporting that, you can clear up and you can you know, free up resources to tackle this growing wait list, which is a huge problem. And also sort of like, you know, um, uh, devote more time to the to the stuff that really can't be automated right now, like, uh, you know, CBT treatment. Does that make sense? No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I appreciate that, you know, you're not um, automating the actual delivery of the actual therapy. But I guess as a whole, therapy is one of one of the sectors that is least or most requires the human touch and maybe least susceptible to automation as a whole um how have you kind of managed that challenge of thinking okay we've got this massive shortage of service and we need to think of smart ways of automating this but also we do need that human touch i mean have there been points at which you've thought okay we this is our limit we're not going to go beyond this or how have you kind of managed that i think we, we're sort of we're we're working that out day by day and we're, we're following where are the huge pain points in this in this pathway and you know what can we help with today and what can we help with tomorrow so um, you're, you're totally right, um, like you've hit the nail on the head. There are aspects of um, cognitive behavioral therapy and, and psychological therapy, which are fundamentally human. And to go at this with a, look, we're gonna automate clinicians is arrogant and, uh, and I think naive and short-sighted. Um, really what we are focusing on is sort of, um, like I said, you know, uh, we're trying to, amplify the effectiveness of the clinicians. So to give you another concrete example, right? Limbic Access was helping with entering care. And then that conversational AI, this AI therapy assistant idea, then moves to mobile app. And patients who are now entering the service and are on the wait list, they have this mobile app. Now, the mobile app is there to just, again, keep collecting um, patient information, mood journaling, um, negative thought diaries, these sorts of things, and provide some uh, some sort of like validated CBT tools and techniques in the moment. So it's a little bit like a digital therapeutic in that sense. But what we then do is when the clinician is assigned, so now you've got patient and clinician, we we are still there. But what we want to do is kind of, um, again, with this idea of amplifying the effectiveness of the therapy, we have the clinician doing their treatment. So it is still fundamentally human and expert led, but we allow the clinician 
to coach Limbit on how to deal with their patient out in the real world in between sessions. So Limbic is this you know, support tool that's always there and always there to talk to for the patient. The patient goes in once a week for their, um, for their one hour session, but then the clinician just says, look, when, when Jenny is feeling overwhelmed out in the real world, um, tell her to take a step out onto a balcony. And, you know, the clinician has this relationship. It's a very human relationship. And Jenny has mentioned that there's a train track outside of her window. So, you know, this clinician can tell Limbic, remind Jenny to just watch the trains go by for a bit, because this is effectively a grounding exercise. But rather than just this sort of generic grounding exercise for everybody, this one is, this is really personalized to Jenny. And it can be because the clinician knows Jenny. So by telling Limbic, this is how I would respond to Jenny if I were with her out in the real world, Limbic is able to take that clinical expertise and take that personal relationship and just kind of spread it and keep it front of mind in between that those one hour sessions, just so that you kind of like, you know, it goes further, if that makes sense. So again, it's the idea of we're not automating the therapist, but we are trying to give them superpowers in a way, you know. Have there been any specific challenges of working, you know, in therapy and mental health? I mean, take it anywhere you want in terms of regulatory, fundraising, confidentiality, all of those things. Like, what are the specific challenges of that? Um, good question. So fundraising is always hard, but uh, I think relative to some areas, maybe um mental health is getting quite a lot of attention right now from from uh, health tech investors so I, th I think it would be uh unfair to say that it's particularly hard in mental health to fundraise um regulatory is um you know it's an important part of innovation across the healthcare space so again it's not really mental health specific and the problems that we have to navigate are uh, largely similar between different healthcare sectors um confidentiality i think this is an interesting one whenever you're processing patient data you you need to kind of overcome this barrier of um well why would the patient agree to let to share this data with you why should they you know and and quite right this is an important question there should always be a reason for somebody to share data it, it's it's um you know you share data in order to get a functionality that that you want and is going to help you that's that's the transaction that's how it should work and sharing data should only ever be to achieve that function never to just sort of like just be this blanket yeah you can have my data and, and good luck um now i think that potentially in in the mental health space and this might be due to sort of like uh, the historical stigma which is breaking down but probably you know it does still exist and that like health data is always very sensitive, but I think mental health data has a particular occupies a particular place in terms of people feeling guarded and sensitive around it. And so I think when it comes to communicating with the patient users, you really do need to be crystal clear and give them a very, very good reason for why they're going to want to share information with you at all. And uh, this was something that we had to navigate during our design phase. We We kind of assembled a panel of patients to input while we were sort of scoping out the requirements of the product and this this idea came up time and time again what are you going to do with my data where's it going to go um who, like who's going to see this and and you know i'm going to share some really personal feelings here and like where's it going to go i, I want to know and so uh, it it was definitely something that we had to overcome i think for us what was helpful was um because we've got that clinician buy-in 
because limbic sits in between a patient and a clinician you know there is that clinician in the loop we're able to sort of demonstrate that we're part of this we're part of this care pathway and we're here to facilitate this care pathway and really the sharing the information sharing is only ever just something that you would share with your clinician you know like that's that's a trusting relationship that you have built and we're going to piggyback on that trusting relationship essentially um i think that's kind of how we overcame it with limbic but um but it was definitely something that we we sort of like we noticed you know sensitivity around this information is quite rightly you know very high and uh, and we had to navigate that with care so if I group you with the other kind of digital therapy um, services. So we're thinking Calm, Headspace, uh, Quit Genius. There seems to be, and feel free to correct me on this, like three business models. So there's getting integrated within the NHS. Then there's the B2C model, so going straight to consumers. And then there's a B2B model, which I think I saw Headspace or Calm got a deal with Google where they kind of serving their employees. Um, and that's another model. I mean, can you talk about the what you've chosen and maybe the pros and cons of each yeah for sure so your b2c play would be consumer well-being usually um so you're basically just saying that this isn't this isn't healthcare this is well-being we're going to make it available in the app store anybody can download it regardless and um uh you're really targeting the uh they're often called the worried well um and uh and and i think this space is really important because you know, the majority of people do not reach clinical thresholds of mental illness, but they are somewhere on a spectrum. And so by keeping these people healthy, it's um, there's huge value to be added. The problem with this is that um, the well-being space doesn't have healthcare level regulation. You don't need validation in the same way. And anyone can basically uh, create a well-being product and launch it. And that's why there's about 10,000 in the App Store. So these consumers are, um, you know, they're drowning in a sea of different options. Um, and it's, it's, a, um, it's warfare trying to get your well-being product seen above other people's, right? So big companies like Calm and Headspace are able to just throw big budgets at marketing and stay ahead of their competition. So it's kind of a, the, the market dynamics are, uh, you know, classic B2C. <clears throat> um i think that the b2b um well the, to be honest with you working with the nhs would also be b2b but the corporate well-being setting is a really interesting one and a lot of companies have seen a lot of success here where they are again it's it's usually well-being rather than validated healthcare but they need a bit more evidence base and they need a bit more sort of uh they need to tighten up a little bit because the employer is going to say well you know is this What's the risk around this? Is this validated? So um, there's it's a bit tighter. And what you are the sort of like value prop there is that from an employer's perspective, it you know, for every um, pound spent on on employee mental health, they make a number of pounds back because it's very costly for your employees to require treatment and to miss work days essentially like lost productivity there's been economic analysis and it's very costly to an employer to have poor mental health in the workplace um so, i mean obviously there's a social component too which we like to, you'd like to think is is also front of mind but when you just think about the economics of the situation there is a reason for them to assign budget to this so then you've got a lot of companies recently like unmind or one they're really good. Um, they're doing a lot, a lot of uh, great work. Biobeats were another who are uh, and and Calm and Headspace are 
have two different models, right? The consumer model and then also the, the corporate well-being model, where you basically make these tools available to your employees as um, well-being perks to try and keep everybody healthy. And, and in the long run, that will be better for um, employee satisfaction and, and the budget. Now, the healthcare setting is, is quite different from those other two, where you've got healthcare regulation now. And what you're saying is your, your patients are not the worried well, or your users aren't the worried well. They are patients who have met clinical thresholds and they, they require intervention. And so what you now need to do is navigate the care pathway, understand how care is delivered and fit in with that. And there are other obvious things where you need to integrate with um, care systems. That this isn't really the case with the well-being side of things, but you need to be able to link in with um, central NHS systems and sort of third-party systems that are widely used. Um, validated evidence-based therapies are really critical, um, and you need to be very careful about um, what you claim to be doing and indeed what you're doing, so that because medical device regulation, I'm sure you know, um, you know, it kicks in. And so you you can release a product in a healthcare setting and not be um, uh, CE certified, but only if you're not sort of altering the clinical pathway and making clinical decisions or impacting clinical decisions in a, in a big way. So you very much need to navigate that sort of like MDR um, space. There is a saying that the NHS is where startups go to die. So is there a challenge that if you place, you know, all your eggs in the NHS basket, then it becomes this kind of sink or swim mentality where if you um, don't get the successful integrations or the pilots or the approval, then you're kind of screwed? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're totally right. The NHS is a very daunting customer. It's this big beast, so hard to enter. There's not one front door there are there are hundreds of front doors even people within this gigantic system don't understand the process so you ask them who's the decision maker and they don't know you know they, they, they work there and they don't know who's the decision maker um, or how you know how would we work together how would we get a pilot off the ground and you're speaking to somebody very senior and they don't know who that who like what approvals they need internally but it's just it's it's um it's i love the nhs but it's it's a very big system and it's hard to you know to maneuver um i think that uh the nhs is where startups go to die is is probably a fair comment because a lot have but if and this is a big if if you can get in and if you can work with them and you know gain that bit of traction the nhs is a fantastic partner because well firstly the reputation carries at a global level so if you have ambitions outside the UK, which Limbic certainly does, um, and, and many startups do, that NHS seal of approval carries a lot of weight in healthcare systems in different parts of the world. So that's fantastic. The other thing is that the NHS is a very sticky customer. So that inertia that we've just done, you know, that, that difficulty to move them can also act in your favor if you are if you're working with them, because they don't switch providers regularly. Now I mean, to be honest with you, this this I think has given rise to a lot of providers to the NHS, maybe being a little bit complacent because the NHS is a reliable customer and there's less of a drive to stay on top of the product because they know the NHS isn't, isn't going to switch easily. Um, so that's something to bear in mind. But I think as a startup, there are it's I mean it's it's definitely something worth going after if you think you've got a way in. But yeah, I mean 
it's a risk. Yeah, you're gambling. Do you have any specific book recommendations, whether they're related to entrepreneurship, health tech, marketing, um, computational neuroscience, whatever? So, I mean, with with entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurism, um, I I personally didn't get on well with a lot of books um, on that topic because. Uh, it's a really, really hard thing to distill down. There, are, there There's no rule book. Um, so you often go away with a collection of anecdotal stories, but the author wasn't able to extract uh, a common rule and, and the reader won't be able to extract a common rule because there is there is no common rule, really. Um, and so I, I found entrepreneurism books um, interesting, but not that informative. I think in terms of uh, um, staying up to date with what's going on and being able to pick out important themes, I really like uh, um, a newsletter by Matt Clifford, the, the co-founder of Entrepreneur First. He sends out once a week uh, a newsletter called Thoughts In Between. And it's a great way in five minutes to stay abreast of big changes happening in the startup space and interesting perspectives. And they're usually quite balanced. So um, I would definitely uh, promote that. With regards to um, comp neuro and and sort of like the academic side of things, um, theoretical neuroscience by Diane and Abbott. Um, so Peter Diane was my uh, PhD supervisor and his colleague, Larry Abbott, um, they wrote the book, Theoretical Neuroscience, which is it's, it's the Bible of, uh, of comp neuro. Like uh, anybody interested in this space should have that book. I'm looking at it now on my on my bookshelf. Um, and Kevin Murphy's book on um, probabilistic uh, machine learning, I really like. So uh, my, my sort of school of thought with machine learning, my interests lie in, in probabilistic approaches. So not just being able to output a prediction, but output a probability distribution over predictions. I personally think that this is really important, particularly in healthcare where confidence in a prediction is a key part of the decision-making process, right? It's not just enough to say, is this picture a cat or a dog? It's, I wanna know, you know, how, how likely my prediction about it being a cat is wrong. Um, and so uh, probabilistic methods in machine learning, uh, Ke- Kevin Murphy's book on that is, is fantastic. I hope you enjoyed that episode. You can find all my links by going to bigpicturemedicine.co.uk. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, then please consider leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you.